All right. Uh, last time we had introduced the patriarchal narratives, primarily Abraham, and I gave you a chart that kind of summarized those narratives. Uh, I hadn't given you a chart that went from 12 down to 36, and today we're going to do 37 to 50, the Joseph and Judah narrative with the 12. But before we begin that, uh, I just want to give you a bird's eye view as far as how the patriarchal narratives, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the 12 sons fits together. Uh, the central theme in Genesis 12 to 50 is the promise, the covenant promise. Uh, in 1 to 11, it's God's blessing, uh, but unfortunately his blessing turned into a curse uh, because of humanity's sin and rebellion. But rather than simply destroying humanity for good, he a new, human, a new humanity with Noah, uh, but then by the end of chapter 11, everything's gone afoul again, so he raised up Noah, uh, Abraham uh, to start a new program. And the new program is a covenant program to restore the blessing. Uh, here was the blessing in creation, but the blessing was turned into a curse because of sin. And now God is at work trying to restore the blessing. And so Genesis 12, 1-3, God's promise to Abraham, leave your land, your homeland. If you'll turn with me, just look at this. We'll just trace these really quickly. He's at work to restore the blessing. And he's calling Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve sons, and eventually this becomes the nation of Israel. And the purpose is to be a channel of God's blessing. So the promise in the covenant is redemptive in the sense uh, that this is the means of restoring God's uh, ultimate redemptive blessing to bring people into, into covenant relationship with God. So Genesis 12, 1-3, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your, your people, uh, your fathers, uh, the land of your birth, to the land I'll show you. And then uh, see, see the term blessing be repeated here? I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those that bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse, and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So what's permeated is God's intent uh, to bless Abraham, and through Abraham, all peoples, the people in the land, all, all peoples, ultimately, uh, in various ways. Okay? Now, this is it's not a covenant yet. It's just a promise. Okay, this is a promise. And it's a contingent promise because Abraham has to leave his land, right? The very first command, leave your land. Go to the land. I'm going to give you a land. Okay, he's not going to get the new land. He's not going to become a great nation unless he responds in faith and obedience. So this is a promise, but it's not an unconditional promise yet. It, 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 it's, it's an offer. Okay, God is offering promises to him, but he's got to respond. In verse 4, we're told Abraham did what? He what? He left as the Lord had told him. So he is acting in obedience. We would assume, understand he's acting in faith, but it's faith acting in obedience. So he's responding and so the program is moving forward. If you look with me uh, to verse uh, 7, by 6, Abraham has, has arrived in the land. And in verse 7, the Lord then appears to him and he says, to your offspring, I'll give this land. So once Abraham gets to the land, God reaffirms the promise. I'm gonna, this is the land I'm going to give to you. Now, it's still a promise. It's not yet a covenant. And it's still not completely unconditional yet. Okay? It's not going to become a covenant uh, until 15 and it won't become absolutely unconditional until 22. Okay, there's still going to be obligations Abraham has to meet. Now, in chapter 13, God reaffirms this. I didn't put it up here. There's lots of these. Uh, but uh, chapter 13, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had departed from him. Remember that Abraham went down to Egypt, uh, got all the, uh, all the loot, and they came back and he had so many sheep and so many donkeys and so many camels that he and Lot, not enough room in the land, so they, they had to depart from one another. And Abraham gave Lot first choice. 
And even after he gave him first choice of the land, the Lord reaffirmed, don't worry that you gave away the best of the land. Raise up your eyes and look. Everywhere you can see. This is all going to be yours. So he says in verse uh, uh, 14, look around from where you are to the north and south, to the east and west, all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever, your descendants forever. And I'll make your offspring, your descendants, like the dust of the earth. So it's clear that we're talking about a plural offspring here, your descendants. So that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. So go walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I'm giving it to you. Now notice there's a little bit of a progress here. In Genesis 12:7, when Abraham arrived in the land, and by the way, he, in, in 12, 1 to 3, he just told Abraham, leave. Go to the land. By the way, not even any directions. So, well, how did he know which way to go? Well, there was a historical phenomenon happening at that point. It was called the Amorite Migration. There was a wave of Semites living in the land of Ur uh, in, in, in uh, Mesopotamia. And for about a 200, 300-year period, they're moving, migrating west into the land of Canaan. Uh, it's not unlike what happened in 1849 in our country. Okay, the movement out to California. And uh, in that context, Abraham was from Mesopotamia. Uh, if somebody had come up to you and you're a young man trying to find your way in life, trying to uh, ma- make a career, uh, and you're living in East Philadelphia, and uh, you're, you're saying, you know, got nothing in my pockets, you know, I'm trying to affect my way in life, what should I do? And somebody says, well, you need to go west, young man you probably would not have interpreted that as moving from East Philadelphia to West Philadelphia. I mean, who'd want to live in West Philadelphia anyway? But as you'd interpret it in 1849 as an encouragement to go where? California. Okay, so so Abraham goes. He understands that he's being directed to go to, to Canaan. In verse 7, when he gets to Canaan, what does God say? He gets to the land. He says what? This is the land. Okay, I'm going to give this land to you. But it's... Abraham has no idea how much land. He is a shepherd. Uh, he's got camel. He probably thinks, what? God's given me enough land for me to what? Well, to graze my sheep. Okay. Uh, so he doesn't yet know what the dimensions of the land are. Chapter 13, God tells him to go up on a hill, look east, west, north, south, and he says, everything that you can see. Okay, we know where that spot approximately is, and he can see maybe 10, 15 miles. Okay, so it's gone from Small grazing, enough enough to take care of my sheep. Now, as far as I can see on top of this hill, and if you come with me to chapter 15, God specifies it even further. So the promise gets clarified and clarified. It grows and grows. It develops and develops. Okay, In terms of the content of, of, of the promise, the dimensions of the land, we're also going to see some movement from going from a promise to a covenant from a conditional covenant to an unconditional covenant. There's, there's progress. Okay, So chapter uh, 17. Abraham asked this question. God promised, I'm going to give the land to you. Chapter 15, I'm going to give the land to you and your, your son. And he says, well, I don't have a son yet. You've been really good at making promises. I'd like to see something. I'd like to, how can I know I'm going to have this? So God appears to him in a dream and gives him an oracle. And uh, I said 17. I should have said starting with 13. The Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, Egypt, and that they will be enslaved in the street of there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried in old age. In the fourth generation, 
your descendants will come back from here. By the way, that's exactly Exodus chapter 4 makes that point. It gives us four generations and then Moses. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God's given the Canaanites and the Amorites 400 years uh, so that when the Israelites come in, they're going to be so wicked, so sinful, that nobody will have a problem with them being moved out. And when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. So it's this, this ominous sign, okay, this ominous vision. And this vision that we see in verse 17 is explained in verses 18 to 21. And this is what the explanation. You say, what's the significance of this smoking fire pot, this blazing torch, this vision? Abraham's asleep and he sees in this vision. What, what, what does this mean? Well, verse 18 explains. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and he said this, to your descendants, I will give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the, river, the great river Euphrates. And then he lists 10 Canaanite peoples. Now, by the way, he was told a little bit earlier to split five animals in pieces, two pieces, and then he sees the smoking uh, fire pot and the blazing torch going between ten pieces. And he says, I'm going to give the land of the ten Canaanite nations to you. And he sees this miraculous, this torch going in the air. Nobody's holding it, but he sees this torch going in the air uh, which is, uh, first of all, he sees a fire pot planted in the ground and then this torch passing between these pieces. Probably a picture, some kind of a symbolic picture of Abraham going to his grave in peace, the Israelites being in the land of Egypt for 400 years, which is called a, a, the great oven of Egypt. So he sees this smoking, uh, smoking oven followed by this flaming torch that goes between the ten pieces. The ten pieces, the severed, uh, severed animals, by the way, the term that's used here for severed gazar is used for smiting and severing, uh, de- defeating the nations. It's going between ten pieces of dead animals, ten Canaanite nations, and passes between. Avar, to pass between, is the term that's used in Deuteronomy and Joshua. God says, I'm going to bring you into the land. You're going to pass through the land. You're going to pass into the land. But it's a torch that is miraculously going through these pieces. Somebody normally holds a torch. God. God is the one that's taking the torch between and he's promising, I will give your descendants the land of the ten Canaanite nations. Okay, that's, This is what's happening. He's seeing a vision and it's being interpreted. Now, this is a covenant promise. Notice in verse 18, the significance is we've moved now from a promise, which is then 13, we've moved from a promise now to a what? To a covenant. Okay. Now, there's something distinct between a covenant and a promise. A covenant contains a promise, but a covenant is more than simply a, a promise. A covenant, the Hebrew word berit, I'll spell it for you here in English. The Hebrew word berit, covenant, the basic core meaning is mutual obligation. Uh, covenants are always between two parties at the minimum, but it's, there's always a mutual obligation. It's like a contract. Okay, there's mutual obligation between the two parties. Now, the mutual obligation that's in Genesis 15 or that with Abraham is not clarified in Genesis 15. There's, there's no statement as far as what the obligation is. You get those in 17, 18, and 22. Remember, this is all being progressively unfolded. Land, as far as you can see. Now 17, by the way, Genesis 15, he gives the dimensions, doesn't he? You see how he gave the dimensions? from the land of Egypt, the wadi of Egypt, to the great river Euphrates, and, and spelling out, which is much, much larger than just look around a couple miles. 
So we've gone from a little bit of land that's undefined to as far as you can see to here's what, what the dimensions are. Okay, so there's this progressive unfolding. And there's also a progressive movement from a promise to a covenant. Uh, but the covenant here, it's not, it's not absolutely unconditional. Okay. Many people have, have, I think, wrongly misinterpreted this image of the smoking uh, uh, oven and the flaming torch passing between the pieces as, an ab- as a symbol of an absolutely unconditional covenant. You don't ever have that. You've got this kind of symbolism in the ancient Eastern world that doesn't convey an unconditional covenant. Okay. What you have here, it conveys a covenant, but the word covenant itself means mutual obligation. Uh, it's actually an oxymoron um, a nonsensical expression to refer to an unconditional covenant because in Hebrew the word covenant means mutual obligation. You can't have an unconditional, absolutely unconditional mutual obligation because there's obligations on both parties. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, the reason many people think that you have an unconditional covenant here is there's no obligations. But the obligations are stated later. And Abraham, by the way, Abraham has already, how has he been responding to God? What has God called him to do at this point? To do two things. What? To say Shabbat Shalom, right? <laughs> what are the, what's the two basic things that have characterized Abraham's walk with God up to this point? Obedience, obedience and faith. Faith and obedience. And so he would simply understand that, that, that what God is asking me is to continue in the same kind of relationship. He, notice in verse, six, in verse 6, he had already responded by what? Verse 6 is Abraham what? Believed. And God God rewarded him. And so then he asked the question, uh, how am I going to know for sure? Abraham, I think, would have assumed that I need to continue to what? I need to continue to believe. And the implication is I need to continue to what? To obey. Interesting. Um, you have, oh, I mentioned the word Shabbat earlier. You have a uh, what's called a, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, Berit Shalom. We're going to teach you all sorts of things today. Uh, Brit Shalom uh, can mean covenant of peace, but literally it's a covenant of friendship. Okay, David and Jonathan entered into a covenant of friendship. And when David and Jonathan swore their loyalty to one another, we're simply told they made a Brit Shalom, a covenant of friendship with one another. They do not articulate mutual obligations. You need to do this, I need to do that. They were already friends what they did is they formalized their friendship. And they understood what we are doing is we are pledging that we will what? Continue and remain in the same relationship we now enjoy. Now, a little bit later, when Saul, David's father, gets, gets into the mix here, and Saul wants to kill David, Jonathan, Saul's son, David's friend, has to choose who he's going to be loyal to. Jonathan has to choose whether to be loyal to my father Saul or loyal to my friend David. And at that point, they reaffirm their covenant and guess what they do? They state the obligations. They make what was implicit in the original oath to one another, they make it explicit now because now it's being challenged in terms of there's, there's new things now that have come up and they're reaffirming. I'm going to be loyal to you. Uh, uh, I will protect you, Jonathan says. Uh, uh, I'll never lift my finger. And one day, when my father Saul dies, you're going to be the one that's going to be king, not me. That's how loyal Jonathan was. Jonathan, you realize, was the heir in waiting to the throne. And he says, I recognize God's hands upon you. I don't want to stay in the way. I- I'm loyal to you. Of course, that's one of the things that irks Saul so much. 
Saul wanted his son and that, to be king, and that's why Saul wants to kill David, plus he thinks David's out to take. But you've got to break shalom. The point is, a covenant of friendship, you do not make the obligation explicit up front because you don't have to. It's understood. Did we talk last time about when a man asked a woman to marry him? No, we, I don't think we did this. Maybe we talked about it afterwards. Okay. Got a nice loving couple here. She's got her arm around him. No, no, I like that. I like that. I'm not trying to embarrass you. I like that. They're smiling. How many years have you all been married? That's great. That's marvelous. They're still smiling. Now, I don't know how you asked your wife to marry you, uh, whether got down on your knees like some people do, or sitting or standing, whatever, it doesn't matter. But at one point, uh, a young man will ask his lady love for her hand in marriage. And he typically will say something to this effect. I love you with all my heart. I promise to love you with all my heart. Will you be mine? Will you be my wife? Will you marry me? And hopefully, at that point, she will say, Oh, yes, I love you too. I would be delighted to be your wife. And then he puts the ring on the finger, which is a sign that we are going now from a promise. We're just talking about this to what? There's, there's, yeah, there's a covenant here, right? So there's a formality here. By the way, whenever there's a covenant made, there's always some formal ritual that sets it apart ceremonially, ritually, to make the point that this is something different. We're not just talking a talk now. I'm showing you my earnest. Now, if that young man, though, gets a little bit confused, he said he knows, he knows that there some, should be some obligations here. Uh, well, first of all, suppose for the sake of argument that um, because he did not... Okay, well, let me back up. Suppose at that point he says, now, as I give you this ring to, to engage you, I want you to understand what this means. There's, this is mutual obligatory relationship. Let me, let me explain the legal ramifications about what we're talking about here. And you already realize, oh, he's going to get in trouble. <laughs> he's ruining the romance of the moment. We're going to be affecting a, a new legal uh, 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 unit here in, in the side of the law one day. And you have to understand, what this means is you will not date other men, you won't sleep with other men, you will not kiss other men, you will not uh, 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 flirt with other men. It also means that we're going to have a division of labor in the home. I will go out and have a job. If you'd like to work in your career for a number of years, that's fine. Eventually, you're going to have the babies. You'll stay home, raise the babies. Uh, you may have to sacrifice your career for that. When they go off to school, then we can talk about you having your career back again. But you have to realize you're going to have to make a lot of commitments. This represents a step up for me sociologically, a step down for you, perhaps sociologically. Uh, I'm not very good at cooking, so if you please would do the, you know, do the meals, I'd be happy to do the meals a couple times a week. Uh, and I'll even think about maybe helping you with the dishes. And I'd be happy to do some of the dishes some of the time. Uh, you'll probably need to do most of the vacuuming. I'm not good at that. I like to dust. I'm happy to mow the lawn, take care of the cars, and repair the outside of the house. Everything that's inside of the house is yours. Uh, I've always thought about having three or four children, like two boys and two girls. Uh, eventually, I'd like to live in this city. I'd like to have a three-car three garage. And I can make about so much that I'm expecting to make. You're going to have to supply this much else. And uh, on and on we go. Well, at that point... Now, by the way, those might be legitimate expectations that can maybe be negotiated. 
that's not the time to do it. If the guy is down on his knees and saying, will you marry me? Let me explain to you the, the mutually obligatory relationship you just entered into. She would probably say, forget you, Charlie. This is not the way I dreamed of this my whole life. So one day when somebody asked us, how did you get engaged? I'll have to tell them this. Now, the problem is, though, here's what the problem is. We don't state those things up front. We leave them to be implied. We understand there's, we kind of understand that we're entering into new things. We understand that we've got obligations to one another now. I don't date other women. Don't do those other things. You don't date other men. We understand that. That's where premarital counseling comes in. Because it's the pastor's job to what? To draw out what those implied obligations are so everybody understands and you have the chance to negotiate that right now, right? If people don't have the privilege to have premarital counseling, which the pastor gets to play that role, they go into a marriage with all sorts of expectations, never really get articulated except in fights. That's when it all comes out because they were implied by different parties, but different parties had different understanding, right? Now, when do you formally make a pledge? On the wedding day, you make the formal pledge, but it's always couched in very romantic terms, so you're really not getting down to the nitty-gritty division of labor and things like that. But it's implied. So you, you enter into a covenant, a, a barit shalom, with implied obligations. Sometimes those obligations don't get teased out or unpacked until later because it's just universally not the right time to do it. Up front, because you've already got a relationship, you're celebrating the relationship, it's moving into a new stage of the relationship, but you don't want to spoil it by taking the personal dimension here that you're celebrating and bring it down to a legal level. On the other hand, if somebody does not understand what's happening when the young man gets down on his knees and says, Will you marry me? Notice he didn't, he didn't ask any obligation for her, and he says, I promise I will love you forever. Well, suppose our young man goes home that night, so excited, he asked his lady love to marry him, he pledged that I will love you forever, will you be my wife? She said yes. So the next morning he wakes up, he tells his roommate, guess what, I got engaged last night, I promised that I would love her forever, and she agreed to be my wife. And he says, yeah, and did you hear what she did after you went home? No. She was going around with that ring, and she went to the uh, football uh, uh, team and she said look what happened to me I got engaged last night uh, I've been keeping myself pure all this time because I've been trying to win him and he pledged his absolute unconditional eternal love to me last night no obligations so now I'm free to do anything I please because he pledged to love me absolutely unconditionally with no strings and no obligations so she slept with the whole football team last night apparently she planned to sleep with the baseball team tonight well, at that point, the young man would say, you know, on the one hand, there's a point to be made, I did not articulate any obligations. <laughs> but it was assumed, right? There were certain things that were assumed and implied. And I think at that point, the young man would say, I think I need to go and talk to you because apparently we had a different understanding of what happened last night. Right? We assume certain things. There was a cultural script here that I thought you were privy to. Okay. Well, I think this is what's going on in Genesis 15. God made a covenant with Abraham, and it was just assumed that he would continue to walk in faith and obedience. 
Uh, the fact that there's no conditions doesn't mean it's absolutely unconditional, because 17.1-2, look what he says in 17.1-2. You've got the conditions. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the Lord Most High, and here's the command, walk with me faithfully and be blameless, then I will fulfill my covenant promise with you. You could read it in Hebrew this way. If you walk before me faithfully and live a morally upright life, then I will fulfill my covenant promise to you. Very clearly, the promise, the covenant he promised in 15 is being explicitly conditioned for the fulfillment upon Abraham being faithful. By the way, the expression, walk before me, be blameless, very same thing we're told in Genesis 6 that Noah had done. Noah had walked before God and was blameless in his generation. In Deuteronomy 18.14 is what God calls Israel to do. So it's not an impossible standard. It's a high standard, but not impossible. Now, 18.18-19. Not only must Abraham walk with God in obedience, but Abraham must teach his descendants to do the same because God promised not only to bless Abraham, but to make Abraham into a great nation. And for that nation to come about, they have to follow in Abraham's path. So 18.18-19. God said, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. Descendants. All nations on earth will be blessed through him. But the next line makes the point, what's the condition for his descendants to become this nation? And what's the condition for them to be able to be this channel of my blessing? He says, for I've chosen him so that he will what? Teach, direct, command his children and his household after him, his future generations after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. The Hebrew terms here, right and just, mishpat, and tzedakah, moral righteousness, social justice. To live a godly life of obedience before God and to treat others in a socially just, equitable manner. To live in an ethical manner with others and to live in obedience with God. And notice, he says, so that the Lord may, what? Fulfill what he promised to Abraham. So the condition for God to fulfill what he promised to Abraham is not just for Abraham to live in faith and obedience, but for his descendants to follow in his footsteps to do the same. Okay? And by the way, we understand this. Uh, uh, even in the New Testament, we, we, we come to Jesus by faith and we meet him, we understand he's my Savior. But as time goes on, I begin to understand he's more than my Savior, he's also to be my, my Lord. And Jesus even said, go into the world and make disciples. Okay, disciple is not just one that believes, but one that believes and then follows. That's what the word disciple means, is, is a follower. And he says, teaching them to what? Go into the world and make disciples, teaching them to what? To obey. We teach them to believe, but the purpose of believing is then that we may obey. That we can now obey the God that we once dis disobeyed because through the power of the blood of Jesus and the power of the Spirit working in our life. Now, Abraham goes up and down. Okay, he's got this, he's on this roller coaster of faith and obedience. By the time we get to Genesis 22, God puts him to the test because the, the, it was it's like, we, we need to find out where you're at, Abraham. You seem like you're on the fence here. Uh, are you going to continue to believe in me and obey me or not? So Genesis, uh, Genesis 22, we're told in verse 1, God put Abraham to the test. Uh, interesting, the Jewish interpreters that look at the Abraham account, they talk about the ten tests of Abraham. Genesis 12 to 23, they talk about there's ten different tests. God tests Abraham's faith and obedience in ten ways. This is the final climactic test. Uh, are you going to be faithful and loyal to me or not? And he puts him to a once-for-all-time test. 
Now, by the way, I'm grateful that God doesn't put us to this once-for-all-time test. He tends to test us in steps. The New Testament talks about the testing of your faith to see if it's genuine, that we're not just hearers, but we're doers. Okay? Um, so he puts him to the test, and uh, he tells him to offer up, up his son. A- absolutely remarkable uh, challenge. But Abraham responds. And uh, we, we touched upon this last time, but I just want to reiterate it. Down to verse 12, he says, Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him, because now I what? Now I know that you fear God. Now, did God have foreknowledge? Absolutely. But we're talking about this moment. It's what Abraham did at that moment that demonstrated that at that moment he was willing to follow God to the nth degree. Because you've not withheld your son, your only son. And then if you look with me to verse uh, 16, now this promise, this covenant becomes unconditional. It had been a conditional, contingent covenant in 15, 17, and 18. Now, because Abraham has met the conditions, it becomes absolutely unconditional in 22. Look what he says. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Now, he says because you've done this, it means that you've obeyed. You've not withheld your son. Because you've done this, I will what? Yeah, and I just bless you. I'll what? Surely bless you. This is the first time that you've got that expression, surely, certainly. There's a certain expression in Hebrew that conveys this. That's it's a certain expression, infinitive, absolute. Certainty. Okay, this is when it became certain. This is when it became unconditional for Abraham. He met the conditions. I will certainly bless you. I will certainly make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. Hadn't God promised in Genesis 12 to bless him and make his descendants as numerous as the sky in Genesis 15? Yes, but in those cases, the promise and the covenant were what? Still conditional. He still had to demonstrate his faith and obedience because he had now, God will what? Certainly. Now it's unconditional for Abraham. I'll surely bless you, surely make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. Through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed because you obeyed. Obviously, Hebrews 11 makes the point that behind every act of faith or every act of obedience, we see faith. We know he believed in 15. That was not the question. Now the question is, is that faith a genuine faith? Is that faith an obedient faith? And in 22, he obeys. So it became unconditional. So at this point, we go from uh, what is clearly conditional, uh, clearly contingent, and at this point, it becomes now unconditional. Because Abraham had met uh, that condition. Uh, by the way, uh, Hebrews chapter 6, we won't look there, but Hebrews 6, I believe it's uh, 14 to 18, makes the point that God wanting to make uh, uh, known to the heirs of the promise, the certainty, he interposed and he elevated the promise to an unconditional oath. And Hebrews chapter 6 makes the point that we go from a promise to a covenant, a promise to an unconditional certain covenant, but he quotes Genesis 22 when it, when it changes. He doesn't quote Genesis 15. He quotes Genesis 22. Hebrews 6 makes the point it's in Genesis 22 that the covenant became certain. Okay. Now, uh, question. Does that mean at this point that it's unconditional not just for Abraham but for all of his descendants? No. At this point it's unconditional for who? Abraham. Because in 18, God said Abraham must teach his descendants to walk in his path, to follow his example. And what was the example? Abraham started with faith in Genesis 15. 
But he continued with what? Obedience. And that is the paradigm. That's the paradigm. We start with faith that continues in obedience, and it's the segue, it's the joining of the two that makes this a genuine relationship. Now, that's not salvation by faith plus works. It's salvation by a faith that has feet to it. Okay. Uh, uh, not just being hearers of the word, but being doers. Okay. Um, now, Abraham's descendants must follow the same path. What this means is, is that for Abraham, Abraham is good. We, we, we want to talk about security of salvation, if we want to turn, use those terms. At this point, he receives absolute assurance of the salvation, if you want to talk in those terms. At this point, he's exercised faith, but the question is, how do I know this faith of exercise is not just that I ascribe to a creed? How do I know that, that that's not just superficial faith, but it's genuine saving faith? Well, at this point, it's very clear that this is genuine faith. Now, uh, the covenant, though, is going to get transferred to uh, Isaac. And uh, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, they've got to follow in the same path with Abraham. So if you look with me to Genesis 26. Now, it's important to see. This is really important to understand the book. Uh, sometimes we refer to this covenant as the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? But the covenant is going to get transmitted to Isaac and then transmitted to Jacob, and then transmitted to the twelve. So technically speaking, it's not the Abrahamic covenant. To be more precise, we should call it the what? The patriarchal covenant. Uh, because it keeps getting transmitted, and every generation uh, of Abraham's descendants have to follow in his path. Now the, so it's going to go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the twelve. Then you may ask the question, where does it go from the twelve? It goes to the nation... When they're in Egypt and God calls Abraham and says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the land I promised to them, I'm about to give to you. And you need to believe me, Exodus 4.31, Exodus 14.31, but you also need to obey me, Exodus 19-24 to at Sinai. And so they're following the same path. We see that they believed and then he calls them to obey. And you have, to both, you have to both believe and to obey to get into the land. Okay. Uh, so I think there's a lot of these questions in the New Testament. We see faith. We see obedience. The Old Testament's putting these things together for us, giving us that paradigm, that segue for us. Now, with, uh, with Isaac, Genesis 26. Isaac's already in the land, whereas Abraham in Genesis 12... In Genesis 12, Abraham was in the land of Ur and God calls him to go into the land of Canaan. Isaac's already in the land of Canaan. So he just tells him, stay in the land of Canaan. Okay, Genesis 26. Now there was a famine in the land beside the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said to him, instead of saying, leave your land and go to the land, he says, do not go to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you. Stay in this land for a while, and I will what? I'll be with you, and I will what? Bless you. For to you, and tell me if you haven't, don't recognize this. This doesn't sound the same. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands, and I will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, will give them all these lands, and through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed. What did he just do with Isaac? The promises he gave to Abraham, he's now what? Giving to Isaac. He's transmitting to Isaac. And notice, he explains in verse 5, why am I willing to transmit this covenant? 
Why am I willing to, to transfer it from Abraham to you? Why am I willing to keep the covenant moving forward per, uh, perpetuity? Verse 5, because Abraham what? Obeyed. Now, we might assume as Christians that we, we, we would kind of be expecting that he would say because he what? Believed. Believed. But again, the faith is presupposed. But what makes that faith genuine and shows that it's sincere is the what? The obedience. So this is not, again, it's not salvation by faith plus works. It's salvation by a faith, but this genuine faith works. We're saved by faith and faith alone, but real faith is never alone, right? Uh, uh, we're told to test ourselves to see if we live, we, we're, our faith is genuine and it's the obedience by the Spirit. So, because Abraham obeyed me and did all that I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. A uh, little interesting side note here. That expression, uh, he kept my commands, uh, decrees, and instructions. That expression in Hebrew appears in the Hebrew Bible elsewhere only of the Mosaic Law. And the rabbis have suggested that, if you will, Abraham was so obedient to God's commands that he gave to him that had the Mosaic Law been in existence, Abraham, in effect, would have kept them. And the fact that this is that Mosaic formula in the hand of Moses in the book of Genesis... What did Genesis 18 say that Abraham was teach his descendants to do? To obey God's commands. What, what does the Mosaic Law do? It explains what God's commands are. So what, by using that expression of, of Abraham here in 26.5, in effect, what is Moses? How is Moses picturing Abraham? As the example of covenant faithfulness. The example of covenant obedience. He's using the very terminology that's used of keeping the Mosaic Law of talking about keeping the commands God gave to Abraham because Abraham is the model. By the way, the New Testament, Romans 4, says that Abraham is the model for us too. For a, for a Christian, Abraham is the model of faith because Abraham believed. And when we believe, we get the Spirit so we can obey. So in the New Testament, the focus is, is on the faith. In the Old Testament, it was both on the faith and the obedience. Uh, but other passages make clear that that obedience is expected too. Now, the covenant is going to get transferred to, to Jacob in the very same thing. I'll be with you. I'll bless you. I'll give the land to you. I'll multiply your offspring through you. All nations are definitely blessed to Jacob. You get that with Jacob. So it's gone from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Now, Jacob's got 12 sons. By the way, how many sons did Abraham have? Two. Isaac and Ishmael. This promise was not given to Ishmael. It was given to Isaac. Isaac had two sons. Who were they? Jacob and Esau. The promise was only given to Jacob, not to Esau. So there's this narrowing. Now Jacob's got 12 sons. So the logical question might be to ask what? Which son? And the answer is all. See, it's given to all of them. And they, of course, are the fathers of the nation of Israel. But when you get to the Joseph and, and uh, Judah narrative, Genesis 37 to 50... Although the promise is extended to all of the sons in Genesis 49, two sons in particular are singled out. Not as the only sons that the covenant promise has been given to, but as the two leaders, the two leading tribes, the two leading sons, because these two sons will become the two leading tribes. And those two leading tribes are Joseph and Judah. And Joseph and Judah are going to be the fathers of what will eventually become Judah and Israel, where you have the northern tribes and the southern tribes. 
the leadership of the northern tribes is the Joseph clan of Ephraim. And the leadership of the southern tribe, of course, is, is just Judah. Okay, so these two tribes, and the leadership of, of these two tribes is foreshadowed by the special blessing that God gives to both Judah and Joseph in Genesis 49. The promise is given to all 12, but there's going to be leaders within the 12, uh, the two tribes, the north and the south, Joseph and Judah. Um, now, uh, let's take just a minute, and uh, I've given you bird's eye view of the Joseph narrative, and if you were in the service last week, in the class last week, you saw a similar structure like this with the Abraham, Isaac narrative, etc., the uh, Jacob narrative. You got the same structure. This is what we call, the structure is called a chiasm. I was very delighted that last week, providentially, if you might remember, uh, Pastor Ron talked about a chiasm in his message. That was not arranged ahead of time. But I thought, well, we just talked about that. And uh, he did a very, I thought he did a better job explaining it than I did. Um, but um, here you've got a chiastic structure. Now, a chiasm has is, is got this, this is a vertical introversion, okay? It, it moves in and moves out. And you go from the beginning to the end, you've got this turning point. Uh, it looks very, very interesting literarily, artistically, but if you turn the chiasm on its side like this, what you really have is a narrative plot structure. You've got a prologue, an epilogue, you've got a problem, resolution, rising action, falling action, and the turning point. So it's not just a neat, intricate, literary artistry. It's the way we tell stories. Okay. Now, what we have, let me just walk you through this, and this will sound very familiar to you. Genesis 37 to 50 looked at this in terms of the literary symmetry. It begins by talking to us about Jacob, who's dwelling in the land of Canaan. Then his son, his most beloved son. Now, Jacob's got two wives. Uh, Jacob has two wives, and you know who the two wives of Jacob are? Rachel and Leah. Remember he fell in love with Rachel? Uh, he made this deal with Laban that I'll work seven years for the hand of Rachel. He worked seven years. He must have loved her a lot. But then on the wedding night, the father, it was dark, I guess, switched daughters. And you say, how could he got away with that? Well, in the ancient world, they bailed themselves. The only thing you're told about Rachel is she had beautiful eyes. Yeah, Rachel had beautiful eyes. Leah had weak eyes. Why does he single that out? That's all he could see. So on the wedding night, he's probably not, no, I won't say this, probably not looking at the eyes. Um, good that your wife let, took your son out at this point. And it wasn't until the morning he realizes, hey, I've been duped. And Laban says, that's okay, you know, it's our custom that the older daughter gets married first. I'll give you Rachel if you work seven more years. Like, you've got to be kidding me. And after seven years, he gets Rachel. Well, God, though, is compassionate to Leah because she's an unloved wife. And so what God does, he opens up her womb and she has ten sons. And Rachel, the loved wife, is barren for the most part. And finally God answers her prayers and she has two sons. Uh, the first son of the beloved wife is the most beloved son and that's Joseph. Which explains why Joseph is this favorite and there's favoritism. The uh, older sons here are uh, Simeon and uh, Levi uh, and uh, who's the, the earliest one? Uh, Reuben, 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 Reuben. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah is number four. Okay, and then you have Benjamin. Okay, so you've got two leaders, two wives, 
and you would expect the two leaders to be the firstborn son of the loved wife and the firstborn son of the unloved wife. But what happens is Reuben disqualifies himself because he sleeps with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi disqualify themselves from the right of the firstborn in leadership because they take vengeance upon the people of Shechem and murder the people of Shechem. So it's left then to Judah. Now Judah kind of messes up in our story, but Judah redeems himself in Genesis 37-50, to 50, which is why Judah is going to play such a prominent role. But 37-50 to 50 is all about leading up to this blessing upon the twelve sons in the exaltation of Joseph and Judah as the two leaders. So let's look at this. So Jacob dwells in the land of Canaan. Joseph, the favorite son, though, brought back a bad report against his brothers. So you realize already, he's the son of the loved wife, he's our father's favorite, and now he's giving a bad report. This is making for good family relationships, which makes his brothers angry. Point C. Jacob also gives him a multicolored coat, which was the foreshadowing he's going to be given. Although he is not, he's like number 10 son to be born, the other sons realize the, the gift of the firstborn is going to be given not to the firstborn son, but to the firstborn son of the loved wife, which is this, this, this runt. And they realize what's happening, which does not make them very happy. And that makes his brother jealous. Then Joseph has two dreams. And God's hand is involved in this. And this only makes things worse for him because he gets this prediction that his brothers and his fathers are going to bow down to him one day. So, you know, he's just... But God is at work because God's actually setting up this antagonistic relationship to get him sent into Egypt because there's another famine coming. And God's got to provide for them, but the only way to provide for them is to get one of the sons of Jacob down into Egypt, and the only way to do that is to create this family rivalry to get him down there. So Joseph's brothers conspire against him, and as a result, Joseph is taken down to Egypt as a slave. Now here's what happens. In the meantime, you get this Joseph down in Egypt as a slave, and then you get this what seems to be this stray chapter about Judah. One of the other sons, Judah, sins against Tamar, the widow of Er whom he refused to give to his sole surviving son, Sheila. And you've got this business involving Tamar. And you think, why, why am I told this about Judah? Because Judah, the other brothers in the previous chapters, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, have already sinned grossly. Judah is the one that's next in line, and guess what? He's shown himself to be unrighteous as well. So you think that Judah's out, but Judah will eventually redeem himself. Because whereas he was refusing to take care of the soul surviving to give his soul son Sheila to Tamar, later on he's going to be willing to sacrifice himself for the soul surviving son of Rachel, for Benjamin. And he's willing to put his life on the line, which ends up, okay, um, you redeemed yourself. So, in the meantime, God is with Joseph. By the way, it's a second chance, isn't it? You'd screw up, but... God gives us opportunity for second chances. Isn't he? He's the God of second chances, isn't he? In the meantime, we pick up back with Joseph. Joseph meanwhile, back in Egypt. God is with Joseph and enables him to rise in leadership to Potiphar's house in prison. You get these two narratives about Joseph. Then Joseph interprets the true, true dreams of Pharaoh's butler and baker and what he predicts comes to pass. Then Joseph interprets the true dreams of Pharaoh and what he predicts comes to pass. So this is a turning point. Everything's been going rotten for Joseph, but now God has given him this ability to interpret dreams and so everything's going to start turning. So God places Joseph in leadership G. Jacob's sons travel to Egypt to purchase grain. We've got this double narrative, two trips down into Egypt. And then uh, Joseph knows what's going on with the brothers. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And he, he says, uh, I'll give you grain, but one of the brothers has to stay here in prison until next time that you return. And he says, bring me your youngest brother. 
And they said, we can't do that because our father had two wives and his loved wife had two sons. And the first son died by some accident that brought our father's hair down to grief. He's never been the same since then. He used to be happy our father's just been miserable since then. And the only son now that gives him joy is the youngest boy, Benjamin. And you're telling us to bring Benjamin down and put him in prison so we can have grain? We can't do it. It would kill our father. He says, we can't have grain. So then Judah says, tell you what, I'll do it. I'll take, I'll take Benjamin's place. Would you let me take my brother's place? I was responsible. I, I didn't intervene when I should have to protect Joseph. I'll do this for Benjamin. And at that point, Joseph just breaks down. He loses it. Because he'd been trusting his brothers to see if there had been any change in their heart. And he can't control himself. And he reveals himself and he says, it's me, it's me, it's Joseph. Of course, they're terrified. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, uh, you're the sovereign here. Only Pharaoh is more powerful than you. We need grain or we die. You're the one that controls the grain. And we tried to kill you and sold you as a slave. <gasps> Are you going to put all of us in prison? And he says, no. He says, God God was behind this. He, God, I saw the hand of God. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. He did this to save the lives of thousands. I'm willing to forgive you because I can see what God was doing. What you did was awful, but I've seen that your heart has changed. You confessed to me what you had done. In Judah, I, you, know, you didn't intervene when you should have, and yet you're willing to sacrifice. I, I can see that your heart's changed. And so he says, is my father still alive? Yeah, he's still alive. Bring him down. So they bring him down. And Jacob can't believe his ears. My son, my son that I loved is still alive. I can't believe that God has kept me alive to see my son. And he's in this position in Egypt. Oh my goodness, God has indeed blessed me. My life has been full of sorrow, my days have been few, but God has blessed me. And let me see my son Joseph before I die. Touching story. So Joseph brings uh, uh, Judah down into Egypt, and then Genesis 49 point C, Jacob there blesses his twelve sons as he's about to die, but gives the right of the firstborn to Joseph and his two sons, uh, and then the narrative ends up coming to a close. Uh, and what you see now, as we look to Genesis 49 uh, and uh, Genesis uh, 8 to 12 and 22 to 26, we get the leadership of, uh, of the tribes of Joseph and the tribes, uh, tribe of Judah. Uh, many people have seen some messianic significance in these promises. Okay, You're eventually going to get Messiah because there will be Messiah that will eventually come from the sons of Jacob and eventually come from the tribe of Judah. Uh, but uh, this is not yet a messianic promise. Uh, it will eventually, as Christians, we can look back and we say, I see how the hand of God is working in this. But it's actually a promise for the, for the leadership, future kingship, that ultimately becomes messianic. So there you have the book of Genesis, and I promised that I would stop talking before a quarter after, and I made that by 20 seconds. <laughs> so I'm sorry, I'm a, I'm a prof. I'm, I'm trained to have a 75-minute rhythm. <laughs> We have 75-minute classes, and I typically talk for about 60 minutes, and we open it up for 15. So I can't quite, you know, I'm terrible in the pulpit that way. No. Okay, we've got, uh, we'll take just a couple minutes. Any, just any comments as far as putting this whole thing together? Yes, dear. You mentioned a while ago that uh, Hebrews goes back to Genesis 22. Well, yes, 22. And... Um, uh, we studied Hebrews one last year's Bible study, and uh, the author is unknown. Yes. And but in that study, I saw that they knew him 
they knew the author. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting question. It's not Paul. When you read the Greek, uh, it's totally different than Paul. It's much more elevated. It's more uh, moving toward what you might classic Greek than Koine. Uh, some, you know, talk. You know, Paul mentions the fact that uh, who is the one that was so eloquent that he mentions in First Corinthians? Apollos. Some suggested Apollos, but Apollos has got a Greek background. Uh, it appears that the fellow that we have here has got a Jewish background. So, whoever it was was very familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. He was a fellow Jew, knew his Hebrew Scriptures, albeit though it looks like he's, he's reading the Septuagint uh, rather than the Hebrew because the quotations appear to be reflecting the Greek Septuagint. But uh, I don't know. It's a good question. And I don't have to know because that's a New Testament issue. <laughs> On those kind of things, I always respond. Uh, I've read the New Testament. I like the New Testament. It reminds me of the old. <laughs> and this is very important. And I, we hit it last week at the end and I wanted to re-hit it again. This is important because it gives us a paradigm, a pattern we come in the New Testament. Uh, we tend, because of what happened in the Reformation period with the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church, we've tended to emphasize faith alone so much because we want to protect the gospel of grace. And we need to protect the gospel of grace. But sometimes we've done that to an extreme to the point that we're really misrepresenting the whole picture. Christ is calling us to believe. But we need to be honest with people. This is not just fire insurance policy. You're putting your name on a dotted line. He, the, the God that you're coming, the Savior that you're coming to embrace by faith, He's also going to call you to obey Him. And so are you willing to... Are, 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 we, we want you to trust in Jesus as your Savior, but you need to understand He will move into your life. And He's going to put demands upon your life He's going to give you the power to do that. But you need to understand this is not just fire insurance. Uh, Jesus even talks about when he's calling people to himself, you need to uh, consider the cost. Nobody puts his hand to the plow and then looks back. You need to understand what we're talking about here. Now that might mean that we might have fewer quote-unquote decisions and in, in names on cards, but it may mean that the people that come to faith really understand what it is that we're calling them to. We get a lot of people that come to church. They come to church, they listen, they tell us they believe, and they're with us for a while, and then they bail out. We never see them. And years later, you know, they want to talk about Jesus. And so we're left to wonder what happened. Well, they may have had that initial superficial, inquisitive faith. There's the, sower, the parable of the sower and the four soils, sower the seed. There's four different responses. One utterly rejects. One gets excited, but the cares of the world squelch so nothing happens. Soil number three believes for a while. But the cares of the world and the uh, deceitfulness of the devil rip it out and there's no growth and it withers and dies and you're left to ask the question, was that genuine faith or not? But the fourth soil, we're told, believes and obeys and responds and brings forth fruit and it's the only one called the good soil. And of course, Jesus is encouraging us to be that good soil. So, that's an important thing. If there's genuine faith, there's, there's assurance. But what is it that gives us security? It's that I believed in Jesus, I rest in the blood of Christ, but I also see there's been a change in my life.